Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about the business of psychedelics. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinski. Matthias and I are partners at SciMed Ventures, a fund investing in psychedelic medicine and mental health. As many of you are aware of or have experienced yourselves, psychedelics can induce altered or expanded states of consciousness. But I find it fascinating that altered states can be reached through a variety of techniques, like deep or rapid breathing, also known as breath work, or keeping a still mind, also known as meditation. Today, there's a growing number of startups and technologies that are enabling and expanding access to many altered states of consciousness. In today's episode, I chat with Scott Britton about the startup landscape for expanding consciousness. We discuss seven categories where we're seeing startup activity, psychedelics, meditation, breathwork, dreams, prayer, light, and sound. Scott is an entrepreneur who sold his last company to Salesforce. He now writes a newsletter on how the expansion of consciousness is the doorway to human evolution. And he hosts a podcast called Evolution FM. We recently co-authored a blog post on this topic, which you can find in the show notes. And now to a special episode where Scott and I discuss the startup landscape for expanding consciousness. Greg, what is up, my friend? I am doing fantastic today. Awesome. Well, uh, excited to be having this conversation on a topic that I know is both near and dear to both of our hearts, which is the intersection of startups being built and expanding consciousness. Um, this has been a, something that I have been investigating and thinking about for a few years. And I guess part of it is actually your job <laughs> to know and think about this stuff. Um, and so maybe before we get into our kind of respective context for looking at this, we can just talk a little bit about what we actually mean with the business landscape of startup consciousness. So how do you define consciousness, Greg? Oof. So consciousness, uh, it's actually, I find quite hard to define in that um, I think it's relative. I think everybody probably experiences consciousness somewhat differently. But from my own lived experience, the way I think about it is there's normal waking consciousness, which is the typical waking up in the morning, drinking a cup of coffee, logging on to Slack, sending some emails, just operating in the world. And when I think of non-ordinary states of consciousness or altered states of consciousness, I think about it as there being other layers of how I'm existing or, um, or engaging in the world. And that could mean accessing certain information that is subconscious. That could mean experiencing emotions uh, differently, as in kind of seeing them more objectively, being more aware of myself and my surroundings. Ram Das talks about how he is loving awareness. So I think that there's something to being the observer and kind of stepping back from that normal waking consciousness. How do you think about it, Scott? Yeah, you're definitely right in that it's kind of a confusing <laughs> uh, thing to define. It's so faceted, but I think a simple way I think about it is it's our subjective experience of 
reality, the world around us, being aware of that. And as a part of that, our identification and how we identify ourselves in that context. It's so all-encompassing, everything from our thoughts, emotions, perceptions, habitual patterns, ideas, concepts, beliefs. There's really just a vast information store um, that effectively we, we draw upon to figure out what to do, who we are, our thoughts. And to me, that all is kind of encompassing of consciousness. And I think as it pertains to, you know, businesses, startups, things that are further advanced that the, the idea of expanding consciousness or awareness, I think from my perspective is, is the process of helping us become more deeply aware of our our deepest nature of who we are and also the the nature of the reality that we we find ourselves in and as we'll talk about with some of these companies you know whether it's categories like psychedelics breathwork etc i think a lot of these technologies both inner technologies that we have as humans, as well as um, things like plant medicine, et cetera, they expand what we believe reality to be. They expand our conception of what is possible as a human. And so that's really what I I think about. And I also I also consider there being a role in part of this process is like, there's these exposure points where we're like, let's say you have a big psychedelic experience. You're like, wow, I was in another dimension and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the process of really kind of stabilizing the deeper awareness, which is a little bit different, which is more of that normal waking state. And I think, you can really kind of alter both, right? You can alter your your like normal waking state and then you can also have these peak experiences. Um, and so I think there's really a role for companies, people, information. I guess we're talking mostly about s- startups today in the venture ecosystem to help people have these experiences and make these long-term changes and in the process uh, improve their well-being, um, which... Who doesn't want that? Yeah, I think one other thing I'll add is I think that a lot of the technologies we're going to talk about today that uh, expand our consciousness, one of the one of the dynamics is that they also t- tend to decrease our attachment to our ego and our self. And when I think about in the context of my job, one of the things I do is I'm an investor in mental health technologies one of the symptoms of lots of mental health illnesses like depression is an overactive ego, right? Rumination that's possessive to people. And so one of the things that gets me really excited about altered states of consciousness and technologies that expand altered states is their ability to deactivate the ego, to turn down the voice in the head, to feel connected to something bigger than oneself. That's, you know, that's what gets me up in the morning. So I'm, I'm very uh, both personally interested in that stuff. And then also with my 
you know, the work that we're doing is really identifying interesting technologies that facilitate that. I think we all can agree that the uh, incessant chatter in the head really there's the source of suffering for for a lot of humans and anything that can help mitigate that is incredibly incredibly useful and, and enriching and yeah i think it would be helpful so you mentioned you're an investor talk maybe you could just give a little bit more context on SciMed, how long you've been doing this the types of companies that you guys look at and I, you know i'd even be curious just to get a ballpark number of like how many companies related to consciousness would you guesstimate that you've seen since you started doing this? Mm, yeah. So Simed Ventures is an early stage fund, uh, meaning that we invest really at the pre-seed seed level primarily. So this is when companies are just being incubated and getting out in the market. Um, we are really interested in frontier mental health technologies. And by that, what I mean is technologies that are creating a new paradigm in how we're treating mental health. So that really means a move away from traditional pharmacological interventions like SSRIs, uh, as well as uh, transitioning from traditional talk therapy to psychedelic assisted therapy or more somatic based therapies. Uh, we're also interested in areas like neurotechnology and other frontiers like the, the gut microbiome, uh, metabolic psychiatry, which is really the ketogenic diet and how that could help uh, treat a wide range of mental illnesses. So um, that's our focus area. And as it pertains to, let's say, the consciousness-related businesses, I think that we are in the very, very early days. I think that a lot of these practices that have existed, some for millennia, are moving from the fringes into more of the mainstream. I think that what I'm seeing is a lot of scientists are becoming increasingly interested in studying the efficacy uh, and safety of a lot of these practices. And so uh, I think right now, you know, it, it's very early. I think that the when I look at like what has kind of been the first segment to enter the market, it has been meditation with companies like Calm and Headspace. Um, they each have a couple million paid users already. And so there's, to me, that's demonstrative that there's like clearly a market for more contemplative based practices. And so now what I'm really excited about is the fact that it's, I don't believe just meditation, but it's areas like psychedelics, areas like breath work, um, sound and light, sensorial stimulation. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what we're going to talk about today. I think in terms of the number of companies that I've looked at, I would say it's, it's probably in the 100 to 200 company range, um, which is not a huge number. But again, I think that this is going to change pretty quickly. And I think that there's more and more founders uh, that are actually experiencing transformation themselves. And I, I think a lot of the time when people start companies, it's when they have a lived experience, they had a problem, they found a solution, and they're like, holy crap, I want to help bring this to more people. And so I think that we're at this really interesting inflection point where we're going to see, frankly, more, more founders uh, or more you know people that are experiencing this on a firsthand basis and wanting to bring it to more people. 
Well, uh, you're talking to one of them right here. Um, you know, I think for people that aren't familiar with me, my work, um, that pretty much exactly categorizes myself where I was, you know, been working in tech startups, was running a B2B SaaS company, had pretty radical spiritual awakening that was induced through psychedelics. That was actually year, seven years into a meditation practice. So that really just put me down the path of trying to explore what was out there, what are the different modalities, what are the different ways to enrich and expand my consciousness. And as a result, be a happier, more joyous, loving being, um, which I think is representative of the natural state of humans. Although I've invested in some companies, I definitely probably haven't done as much as you guys, probably haven't seen as much, but you know, have spent a lot of time looking at what's out there and also looking at these ancient traditions uh, that I've used in my own experience and thought about how could we make this more accessible to more people using technologies? How could we improve the efficacy of how these things are taught, disseminated? And I, I see there's a lot of opportunity and I completely agree that we are in the early innings. But I also would say is that things seem to be picking up quickly. When I was getting into this five years ago, it was a very kind of fringe thing you didn't talk about. And now it feels like every other person I talk to, and maybe this is just because of the content that I put out online, wants to talk about their psychedelic experience or, you know, <laughs> what subconscious work they're doing or somatics, or, I mean, it really just feels like there's a ton of tailwind here and um, it's exciting. And so I think what we're going to be talking about today is we for those of you that aren't aware, myself and Greg put out an article that discusses the consciousness landscape um, across seven categories. Those categories are psychedelics, breathwork, meditation, dreams, prayer, enlightened sound. There's obviously some things that are not included in there, but these are the ones that we've seen a lot of venture activity. Um, and it seems like there are people that are building venture style startups in those spaces. And so this conversation is really about going a little bit deeper in those realms and giving our own two cents on what we're seeing, where we think the opportunities are, why certain categories might be better than others. And I think if that's, you know, if you're a builder looking at these spaces or looking to join one of these companies, perhaps you'll find this a useful conversation. So, Greg, why don't we get started on? psychedelics, which I know has been something that's been deep in SciMed's uh, wheelhouse. I mean, it seems like it's kind of in your guy's name. <laughs> um, and so talk to me a little bit about the emergence of the psychedelic industry and kind of where you think this is all going. Yeah, totally. So psychedelics definitely is uh, part of our origin story. Uh, in that when we first got started, that was our core focus. Uh, and I'm also the co-host of a podcast about uh, the business of psychedelics and mental health with uh, my co-founder, Matthias. And so, um, yeah, have thought pretty deeply about the many dynamics of psychedelics, the, the mental health implications, the spiritual implications, the cultural implications, uh, and 
I would say that where it, what it feels like today is that the train, I think the psychedelic train has left the station in a good way. Uh, and what I mean by that is that um, there's a, a, a huge amount of activity. About $2 billion has been invested into psychedelic companies. Worth noting that most of that activity, over 90%, has been in drug development. So that it means companies that are pursuing FDA approval. And it's really uh, been a range of compounds. It's been everything from MDMA for the treatment of PTSD, and that would be MDMA plus psychotherapy. And that is in phase three clinical trials, could receive approval by next year. That is psilocybin uh, therapy. Uh, Again, psilocybin plus psychotherapy uh, could be approved uh, one or two years after MDMA. And, um, And then you have companies that are developing a lot of new compounds, uh, making tweaks to existing molecules to make them either shorter acting, to increase the potency, to increase the mysticalness of the compounds themselves. So there's a lot of really interesting work being done there. That's a lot of the activity that's been happening on the drug development side, but it's worth noting that ketamine is already a FDA-approved psychedelic. And so what that means is you have clinics that are opening. There's uh, over 500 clinics at this point, I believe, that are across the country administering ketamine um, uh, either as a uh, intranasal. So Spravato is an FDA-approved drug from Janssen and uh, and Janssen, uh, excuse me, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which is part of Johnson Johnson. So there are clinics that are administering that. You have other clinics that are doing ketamine through intravenous. And then you have other clinics that are doing ketamine-assisted therapy, um, either in person or through telemedicine. And so you have companies like MindBloom or Journey Clinical that are in that business. The What's promising is that there is already a really good body of data that shows how effective it can be for the treatment of a pretty wide range of uh, mental illnesses. From a commercial standpoint, ketamine is also interesting in that the treatments are um, relatively short-lasting, between one and two hours for most ketamine treatments. You compare that to MDMA or psilocybin, which can, you know, be five to eight hours. That basically takes a full day. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited, honestly, about the progress that the psychedelic field has made. And um, I think that there are a lot of people that will really benefit from these treatments. I mean, I don't know a ton about drug development, um, to be honest, but are those scenarios like winner-take-all type situations where it's just a race? Historically, no. Uh, there are usually multiple companies that are uh, you know, approved in any given category. So for example, antidepressants, there's I think about 20 of them on the market. And so um, I don't see it as a winner-take-all market. I see there being multiple drugs that are approved. And so I think, and I think that's going to be critical because both from a pricing standpoint and also from a the, each individual finding the right you know psychedelic treatment that works for them. You know, when you look at outside of the whole FDA model, if you look on the personal sort of Uh, whether you call it underground or people's own relationships to psychedelics, let's say they go to retreat centers or take them themselves, you know, what you'll find is that 
people tend to gravitate to different, they, they build relationships with different psychedelic medicines, right? So for some people, it's uh, psilocybin, for other people, it's ayahuasca. And so I think um, ultimately, we're going to need a variety of options that are available. And I think that's the direction we're heading. What do you think will happen with, like, for example, if I think cannabis is a corollary, and I think about the fact that you could buy, go to a dispensary and buy cannabis, and um, there's, you know, farms that are like cannabis, which is like very different than like a lab created, I, I don't even know, compound, I guess is the word. Um, synthetic. Yeah. synthetic, like, is there a line of sight into how that's going to play out with something like mushrooms or ayahuasca that's more actually occurring in nature? Um, and what yeah. kind of startups might come out of that? Totally. So there are some companies that are pursuing uh, the botanical approach, which is the more natural compound versus the synthetic. We'll see. Uh, well, honestly, it's it's too early to see, to see uh, the viability of those types of companies. Generally, when you have botanical, there's more variability in how the like compound is produced, and and that means that there could be differences in the administration between two different people. FDA doesn't want that, right? They want the same thing being delivered to everybody. But there are companies that are doing specifically, you know, the botanical route. There's a company called Filament Health, for example. And so, um, you know, I, I think generally that would probably be a good thing that there are options that aren't just synthetic. It's also worth noting that, you know, we're talking a lot right now about the FDA pathway. There are states that have already approved psilocybin specifically service centers that basically mean that people in Oregon and in Colorado will be able to go to a center and be given the actual mushroom itself and be able to take it and they won't need a mental health diagnosis in order to do so. And so there does seem to be a trend happening about uh, similar to what happened with cannabis where states are gradually approving psychedelics, uh, whether it's specifically psilocybin in other states, it could be more compounds, it could be peyote, it could be ayahuasca, we'll see. But you know, it's on the ballot in other states like California now. So I think there will be more options available that are both synthetic and botanical long term. Having said that, most of the startup activity that has occurred has been on the synthetic side. That's where that money is, man. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. pharma, pharma companies, uh, not shocking. They're trying to uh, be aggressive here. My last question for you is more kind of on the like less um, drug development, but more provider side. So do we think that there's like analogous scalable businesses to what we see with traditional medicine? Like I know, you know, for example... I'm close with Mindbloom. They're kind of building a, a telehealth clinic. There's probably people that are trying to build in-person, one medical style businesses, but for psychedelic therapy, like how are, as in putting your investor on hat on, like, how do you think about that? Like, what do you think, how do you think that's all going to play out? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say the companies that have, I would say are most in line with the venture model uh, on the infrastructure side of things are more akin to the telemedicine model. Why? Because, I mean, from a purely business standpoint, it scales more easily, right? You don't have to open brick and mortar locations. 
um, it has different staffing requirements and there's just more scalability there. Having said that, here's what we don't know. We don't know necessarily if for some patients, um, they would probably, if they would benefit from being in person versus doing it at home, right? If somebody is, um, psychedelic naive or it's their first time experiencing psychedelics, they may actually be more comfortable doing it within a, uh, a, a physical space with a guide with them, which is historically how psychedelics have been administered for millennia, right? When you think about the shaman and their role in the experience. And so, um, you know, what I would foresee in the future is a hybrid model where some of the telemedicine providers ultimately have physical locations themselves. Um, I think in order to get there, they're going to need to uh, raise more money and kind of become either profitable or raise money in order to be able to balance the two. Because I do think that there will be some, um, some people that actually prefer the, um, yeah, the in-person experience. And so, that's worth noting. I think um, just the clinic model in general, in my view, is more aligned with private equity versus venture capital. And by that, I mean that it's more of a proven model, actually. And the return uh, dynamics are just different than venture. Uh, venture generally is uh, high risk uh, investment that if it like if it works, it really works. And versus a, uh, with the clinic model, um, you know, there's clinics in a wide variety of areas, both in mental health and healthcare generally. And so, um, I think that there's more, frank, frankly, like viability to that model. Um, and and what I mean mean viability, I mean like predictability. And so, um, I, you know, to me, it feels less aligned with the venture model. Having said that. I think that there's a really interesting opportunity for uh, technology providers and service providers that are selling to clinics. Uh, and so that's where I see, you know, more of it's the picks and shovels types of businesses. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Journey Clinical as an example, as a company that actually provides um, like for therapists, they'll provide prescribing capabilities and a toolkit such that they can be very focused on administering care for their patients and not have to work focus on the more medical side of um, screening and prescribing and dosing and 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 whatnot. So they have like a, a more of a triaged model, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I where my mind was going was like I imagine there's going to be lots of companies that help existing providers where there's a trustworthy relationship, like expand this into their practice seamlessly. Yeah. And then they'll probably be, you know, yeah, like you said, like I think about my mom, she doesn't want to do, she wants to go and have somebody watch her, you know, if she was to do something like this. And I think a lot, yeah, a lot yeah, of people yeah. want that. And like, does that, does that look like a care.com or some, you know, a trip center comes to your house? Does it look like in-person clinics? Like, I think we're going to see all of it and yeah. what the best business models are you know, are, are to be seen and probably depend on some regulation stuff. So let's keep moving. I want to, I want to get to meditation. So, uh, if you're a meditator, you probably know there are some behemoths in the space, headspace and calm to be specific. I know I actually started my own meditation on uh, headspace a decade ago. Um, very grateful for that initiation. And, you know, my, from my perspective, it's still, I think I saw something like 12% of Americans have tried meditation. So 
To me, it still mm. feels like early innings for this space, but I also can acknowledge that like as an entrepreneur or someone starting a business, it's like, all right, well, there's well-funded, well-established, trustworthy brands that are already helping people de-stress, sleep better. Like where, where do we see things going? Where is the opportunity? And I know one place that you've spent a little bit of time is uh, around some of these kind of neurotechnologies that might enhance the experience. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I think the first phase of meditation in startup land has been uh, a app that delivers a daily meditation, you know, um, session. And I think that that can actually be really effective. Like I used Headspace for a period of time. And I think that really helped me build a practice. I um, now don't use it as often, but um, I think that there's a lot more people that will probably come to meditation through that pathway. Also worth noting that companies like Headspace.com, they're also really focused on the B2B route now too, right? They're looking to become a benefit for employers. So um, I think the next phase is actually more on the hardware side of things where you have um, initially companies like Muse um, and now companies like Journey with an H uh, that are developing devices that ultimately are intended to help induce more profound, deeper meditative states. Uh, and so... To me, that's really interesting. I think that there is clear market demand. Uh, again, if we look to the incumbents like Calm and Headspace, uh, it's really uh, around the technical risk of, is it actually achievable and possible to do this? And safe. <laughs> and safe. That's a really good point as well. And then you get into the question of like the technique itself, right? And how are they actually going about this? So for example... Um, you know, like the, the companies I just mentioned, they're really interested in, in using neurofeedback where it's really in training the brain to, into a certain frequency that is calming and more meditative, like the theta wave brain state historically is what we see people who are in meditation. And so, um, you know, Journey in particular, they're actually interested in, uh, in inducing a jhana meditative state, right? The jhanas being a Buddhist um, practice of with nine different phases of meditation that ultimately leads you to enlightenment, the ninth stage. And so they're actually studying the brains of jhana meditators to see if they can create a model that then they can induce uh, or, or not, not induce, but to uh, replicate or productize such that when anybody puts on their headset, they can basically entrain the brain into the jhana states. Um, and so, you know, it, it, if it works, I think it's a massive uh, impact on society uh, and I think can become a massive business. You know, we just need to see from a technical side how feasible it is. I also think because one of my one of my buddies actually um, started a Muse competitor back in the day. One thing that he said it was called Three Pound. One of the things that he told me was is that he was mo monitoring like the personal. I don't know if it's EEG 
the technology of like when the price point of that got down to a certain point, which would make the feasibility for commercialization more realistic. And so, you know, even with the technology that can it actually achieve this, that's one thing. And then it's, can it be achieved at a price point that makes it accessible? Like is journey a $3,000 advice or is it a 300 advice? $300 advice or $30 advice. And I I just don't know that we know. Um, But I think it is like kind of another interesting vector. But I think more from more macro perspective, yeah, like the broad frame of like, what type of enhancements could be added to the meditative experience that probably look like some form of hardware. um, Although I, there are certain technologies that actually don't touch the human body, such as haptics, ultrasound, that uh, are contactless, um, that make it either easier to go deeper, maybe faster on-ramping. You know, there, it, it all is very interesting to think about. I think one, one place that my mind goes is, and I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing, right? I think it's a good thing. I think part of the consciousness journey is about taking the meditative practice from a 20 minute thing in the morning to gradually becoming part of your entire day. Like Mm. there's a great quote in the book, the greatest salesman in the world where this guy encounters this yogi and they're like, how long do you meditate? And he says, he responds, I'm always meditating. And, And there's a point at the consciousness journey where you, you kind of enter the seat of witness consciousness with permanency or greater levels of embodiment until there's permanency. And so to be seen, like that is almost what I have experienced as like a requisite phase of Mm. transformation. And I'm interested if quote unquote, like jhana inducements or enlightenment inducements, if those are just temporal peak experiences um, or those actually cause more rapidly or more easily or permanently make actual changes to the consciousness. Um, and yeah. I just, I think we just don't know two very different vectors to contemplate. Totally. I think, um, one other important dynamic that needs to be accounted for in this area is the need for a teacher and community yes. to make sense of this stuff. Uh, and it's actually not that different than psychedelic medicine as well, where again, it's like you're, when you're, uh, exploring other sort of realities or, 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 you know, the realms of consciousness, there's a lot of weird stuff that comes up. There's a lot of things that, uh, can be destabilizing. Yep. And so who knows, maybe, maybe there's a startup idea in here for somebody to pick up around, um, accessing teachers and or community, um, either physically or digitally, uh, I haven't actually seen a company doing that. I, I think it's a really good point. It's it's something I've thought a lot about because I had a quote unquote spiritual emergency and uh, was really lost. And it wasn't until I found Stanislav Grof's book called Spiritual Emergency that I could figure out what the hell was going on with my life. I eventually discovered there are places like the Spiritual Emergency Network IMHU that provide access to professionals who deal with these type of things. I still think those could be modernized in a big way relative to what they are now. And 
I think you make a really good point because, you know, for millennia, like people learned this in a group setting at the ashram um, or other type of settings where they had access to a teacher, they could ask questions, they could go through the experience together. And, you know, it's so important, right? It's, it's not that different from like why churches have existed. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think general fellowship is a vital part of the journey. And I think one gap that I've noticed that I've also thought about is, um, you know, we have all of these community-based businesses. A great example of that would be YPO. Um, another example mm-hmm. of that in the startup space would be Revenue. I think it's called Pavilion now. It used to be called Revenue Collective, where it's basically people with a shared interest. And there's a network and there's shared resources and people can talk to each other and get advice and feedback and advance themselves in some way. I don't see that for consciousness right now. And I don't see it for the intersection of consciousness and being a responsible person in the world, a business person. And so I think there's going to be, call it more niche community type businesses built around this. And I absolutely think as far as applications go um, and companies that that community component is a huge differentiator. And um, I mean, I, I've seen it in my own work where I just, I created this course on intuition with the idea that that is a skill or an emergent ability that can be nurtured and improved. And I thought people were just going to be all about the content. And what did I learn? Everybody was talking about the community, how, how helpful it was yeah. just to have other people to talk about this we, these weird phenomena with that they don't have in the rest of their life. Would you start this? I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping the options open, but yeah, I mean, I think these type of things are, you know, are attractive and, you know, it's something, something I've thought a lot about. So we'll see, but I think this actually dovetails nicely into the next category, which is breathwork. And, um, if you aren't familiar with breathwork, there's essentially through various types of breathing practices that are usually more intense, kind of almost like hyperventilation. One can access a altered state. This is not a new practice. This is actually pranayama breathing was something that has been around for thousands of years. And, you know, it seems like it's almost having a renaissance more recently. And one of the things that I've noticed with a lot of these companies that have the digital delivery of very similar to meditation applications, breathwork classes. So you have Othership, you have Breathwork, there's a company called Open, is that a lot of these companies also are building out physical locations. They're doing the community element with retail things. And so I think it's super interesting. And yeah, I would love to hear your take on it, Greg. Yeah. So first on breathwork as a practice, I really love breathwork. I think that it is so good at resetting the nervous system. I will do it when I'm stressed and just need to flip a switch. And it's so cool that it's just the body and breathing and just being with nothing more. So the fact that that's available is awesome. And it's also interesting and worth noting that Stan Groff, who created holotropic breathwork, he developed it 
at, right after psychedelics became criminalized, like made illegal. And so um, I just, it's quite poetic that like an OG in the psychedelic space creates a way of accessing similar altered states of consciousness just through the breath. And so, you know, I, I, what we're seeing is that there's, as you mentioned, you have apps, you have like Othership as an example. And within these apps, you know, you have a guide that's basically telling you to do certain breathing techniques. It could be deep breath in for eight seconds, deep breath out for eight seconds, repeating that, and then moving to one breath in, one breath out, then a minute in, a minute out. And you have music uh, that's really, I find it to be generally like, kind of like deep house, uh, a bit of more tribal. Uh, and in doing so, it's just like, yeah, it, it does a really, they, these apps I, I find do a really good job of providing the right kind of setting because you have headphones in, eyes closed, laying down uh, in a way that I think actually does a pretty good job of replicating the in-person experience. Having said that, the in-person experience can be profound in other ways, right? Where you're generally not doing it yourself, but you're in a group uh, setting. So you have like the group energy, which can be really interesting to be a part of. And for example, in the group experiences that I've had, you'll have like collective moments where everybody's releasing their breath and a sound like, you know, screaming with the the same time of, of a gong being hit. And so you have this like crescendo in a way that I think is less accessible in the app form. And so it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with psychedelics, where I think that ultimately the hybrid model is probably the best approach for the user in that uh, I think that sometimes it can work really well individually at home. And I think in other times it's good to do it in community with other people. So the question is, okay, is how viable of a business can this be? Is this venture scale? So one thing that I, you know, I really like words. Uh, and when I think about the word breath work, I can't help but remember that it has the word work in it. For me, it does require effort to really do it successfully. Uh, and so when I think about that I, and I think about like, okay, that, that then means that there's going to be friction for some people to adhere to a practice consistently. And ultimately for businesses to be successful, you need people to be using it consistently. And so I think that some of these companies will be really, really big, but I also do wonder the ultimate market size for these, at least today. I think over time it will change as more people get exposure to breathwork. At the same time, I also sometimes think, uh, and you know, is it possible that an incumbent, a company like Headspace or Calm, could release their own breathwork modules because they already have the distribution, right? And so these companies now are fighting to get fighting, maybe an aggressive word, but they're striving to get users on board to be using their applications. Um, you know, one of the incumbents could just flip a switch and access millions of people all of a sudden. And so that's where I have questions. Yeah, those are those are great points. I mean, you know, one of the interesting phenomena that I've noticed with breathwork is because I actually, I started my breathwork journey in 2019. Nobody really knew about it. It felt like it was super weird in New York City. I, like I couldn't, I had to work with like a solo practitioner. And um, I started to actually host classes with that person on Zoom 
and I would have like 25 friends join and everyone would talk about how amazing it was, how transformational it was. And then I would invite them to the next one and then no one would come back. And so there was like a retention issue with breath work. In my own, in my own experience, it's, it was a practice I used for a while, but I don't do breath work anymore, actually. It's very occasional. And if I want to do it, I can go into YouTube for free and get like othership is awesome, but like I can also get a pretty good experience on YouTube for free. And as you mentioned, breath is free. And so what, <laughs> what is the business opportunity? And I think there no question will be like opportunities for companies to build nice businesses that are, they package it all up for you. It's nice. Like, you know, they know they're going to get a good experience. It's, it's affordable, but yeah, there is a lot of risk with these other businesses that have the audience, which is honestly half the battle. And so I think that's yeah. my perception of why places like Othership and and Open are going the physical studio route because they recognize that what's defensible and what's valuable isn't just sitting down and breathing for 40 minutes. It's the hey, instead of going to the bar, let's rip a breathwork class and then let's hang out and talk about this like crazy ass experience we had. You know, that's that to me is like interesting IP that's more defensible versus yeah. like cool music and a someone with a nice voice. So I think that's why those companies are moving in that direction. And then obviously a subscription business model later on top of that's nice with the app. So... Yeah, I don't know what the unit, unit economics of those spaces are, um, but uh, obviously there's a ton of retail type businesses that charge people 25, 30 bucks to class that are just running classes all day that have you know built nice companies. So it's not beyond me that Breathwork would be another one of them. I think to that point, I think that in the future, we'll have some independent studios that are just focused on Breathwork frequency being another example. But then I think what we'll start to see is like what open or othership are, which are, they don't just offer breath work, right? Mm. Their physical locations, for example, they offer meditation. Hot, cold therapy um, for othership. Hot, cold therapy, right? And so I think what we're agreeing on here is that in our own experiences, we don't know many people that are doing breath work daily uh, and are just, and maybe those people exist. If you exist, I would love to chat with you uh, and, and learn about, you know, what that experience is like. But I think it seems like it is uh, important for some, myself included, is a part of a larger sort of holistic practice where, you know, you meditate and you have your ice, hot, cold, you know, regimen, and then you also have your breath work available to you at certain times. And so, yeah, I think that just introduces questions around, is it a standalone business or does it need to be part of a larger offering? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I do think there's also some interesting technologies that we did, we haven't talked about in the article that it relates to breath. Like for example, there's a concept of resonance breathing and a product called Elite HRV that I was using for a while that basically helped you try to find your resonant frequency and basically train your nervous system. And I, you know, anything that puts you in a not quite an altered state of consciousness, but it's certainly making you in a calm, more relaxed state. And so it wouldn't surprise me if 
there's some wearable introduction to the space of breath that similar to meditation is kind of like a more mature manifestation of how the practice could be enhanced in some way by tech. We'll see, but let's keep moving. So one of the altered states of consciousness that probably everybody listening has experienced with is dreaming. And dreams are the kind of OG altered state, uh, if you will. And I think it's fascinating how we really don't know a ton about dreams today. And I can say that my own perception of what dreams are has evolved quite a bit. But there are some interesting companies starting to pop up in the space. And one of them, I I think they all, as it pertains to dreams, all kind of hover around this idea of lucid dreaming. Um, Have you ever had a lucid dream, Greg? Yes, I actually had four consecutive lucid dreams last week. I can tap into it occasionally. Um, For me, it's usually flying. That is, I would say, probably the most typical lucid dream that people experience. But, you know, when you're in a lucid dream, you are, from my experience and what many people report, I am uh, aware of what's going on, but I'm not controlling what's going on. I'm, I'm not necessarily dictating it. I'm kind of observing as I'm flying over something or engaging in an interaction. And it feels great. Uh, it's really fun. And there was a period actually when I was in college when I was really fascinated by lucid dreaming and I read some books on it and I learned some of the basic practices around how to induce it. Uh, and generally how you induce it is by doing certain functions in your normal waking state when you're awake such that when you're dreaming, you notice something that reminds you that you're dreaming. So for example, a common practice is to count your fingers throughout the day. Uh, And when you're in a dream state and you look down at your hand and you see all of a sudden that you have six fingers or something that feels maybe potentially off, uh, you're basically reminded that you're actually in a dream state and then you become aware of it. And so, um, you know, the, the question now is, A, how many people want to experience that? And B, how can you reliably create a product? How can you create a product that reliably induces that? And so there's been a wave of companies actually that have been around for almost a decade that are creating like sleep masks that basically flash lights within the mask. And the idea is that when you're sleeping, you become aware of the light, which reminds you that you're sleeping so that you can become aware of your dream. But more recently, there's a company called Prophetic that is creating a hardware device to induce and stabilize lucid dream states. So to me, sounds really cool. I would probably be a customer of it if it worked reliably. But I also have some questions. Uh, I have questions around how big the market is for it. I have questions around technologically, how feasible is it? I frankly haven't gone super deep on that. So I don't have a intuition on that at this point. And so, you know, I think that there's, there's definitely something interesting here, feels more like a toy than anything else. But oftentimes, really big businesses start as what appear to be toys. Yeah, I would agree that there's been a number of companies in the space that, um, have tried to create an intervention that helps people reliably tap into these states. None have been breakout companies. So 
I don't know if that's because of the efficacy. I don't know if it's because this is like a pretty niche thing. One thing I do think is interesting is that lucid dreaming states, at least the the type where you can uh, kind of control the experience are also associated with uh, healing. So many people, for example, I, I've read stories and books about people that have healed their stutter in a lucid dream. And they, they're basically kind of able to alter the information in their subconscious. So if that's very similar to psychedelics, and so if that's true and you can reliably get someone into that state and we can start to, I don't know, better understand like what we're doing in dreams, like I think these companies could be very interesting because there's a lot of people that don't want to put substances in their body and everyone dreams every night. And so I guess we don't know yet. But yeah, I too am intrigued by prophetic, had a handful of lucid dreams in my life. And um, it would be cool if it was an on off switch, if I could just do it when I wanted to. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, and just to um, add to your point about the healing nature of dreams, we it, it's a really good point. Like we're processing lots of information. We're making sense of in of stuff consciously and subconsciously. And so yeah, I think that if that was an element of the device, then I think that there that makes me more excited, actually, as I think about it. Um, two other things that are worth noting. One is that there have been studies lately done that actually show that you can communicate, like researchers have communicated with people in their dream states, and there's been two-way communication. Like the researcher has basically... Uh, figured out a way to, to ask certain questions to dreamers. And then they respond with like the twitch of an eye, but they're still dreaming. Mm. And so, and they know that because they're actually tracking their uh, frequency of their, of their brainwaves. And so maybe there's something interesting there as a new product, uh, as a way to communicate with people in dream state. Maybe that's venture backable, maybe not. Maybe it's just like a fun, cool toy, but that's interesting to me. And the other thing that's interesting that uh, in just the market of dreams, as I think about it, is the analysis of dreams, right? Like there is so much good information to uncover uh, and to make sense of. And, you know, for if you work with like a, a therapist that's a Jungian therapist or, you know, uh, psychoanalytical, they can help you make sense of that. But most people aren't actively in relationship with a therapist that specializes in dream analysis. And so maybe there's a business to be created that either is more like a telehealth model where you have a dream that you want to break down and you're, you hop on the call with your, uh, with your analyst, or maybe it's something with AI yeah. um, where with a large enough data set, you can actually help make sense of what you just experienced. Yeah. I think GPT is, is ripe for this type of, type of thing where, you know, I've seen people like dump in like years of therapy notes and say, find the patterns and themes. Um, and I could see people doing that with dream recall as well as uh, interpretation, which is interesting. My view on dream, yeah. I can't help but share, but my view on dreams has shifted from basically expressions of the subconscious, which I, I still think do exist, but I also seem to have shifted to believing that dreams are merely just us accessing the astral state because I have recurring characters in my dreams I've never met. And I see these people all the time. And 
experience things. And it's like, I have a, it feels like I have another world that I'm in versus just like an expose of my mind. I really don't know what to make of that. (laughs) And certainly there's yogic traditions that basically talk about that. And so, yeah, it's, it's very fascinating. Very, very fascinating. Hopefully we learn more about what the hell is actually happening with dreaming and in our lifetimes. Yeah, totally. Well, let's, let's talk about prayer because whether you knew this or not, there's actually been a ton of venture dollars thrown into a couple companies in prayer and specifically company Halo, which I shared an investor with at Troops has raised over $100 million. Pray.com has raised $34 million. What is your take on this category and why it seems to be hot, at least for the breakout companies uh, and, and venture investment? Yeah. So America is a Christian country based on it from our heritage, right? Like you had Puritans actually forming the initial foundation of this country. And so, and today there's, I don't actually know what the statistic is, but tens of millions of uh, Christians, is it more than a hundred million? Like, I don't know, but it's pretty freaking high. So it makes sense that there's like a market that already exists for people to access prayer and um, and also not just prayer, but interactivity within apps. And so the way that these apps that I've seen uh, work is that, you know, you basically are getting your Bible verses and basically different quotes and interpretations of varieties of biblical literature within the app itself. There's also prompts like prayer prompts where people are actually engaging and entering in things that they're praying for. You know, to me, again, like the market already exists. When I think about the what probably added an inflection point to these businesses was COVID, right? The fact that a lot of these communities couldn't actually convene within the churches themselves. You also have younger generations that are more digital first and maybe don't even want to go to church, but still want to engage on some level with this type of information. And so, um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I feel like not discussed enough in more of the startup landscape and the venture ecosystem. When you look at how much these companies have raised and who the investors are, right? You have Founders Fund, General Catalyst, Sousa Ventures, Homebrew. Like these are, in my view, some uh, really of the best venture firms around. And I find it really interesting that they're piling, you know, tens of millions of dollars into these companies. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think, you know, you make some astute observations as to like why these exist, like the, the facts are the facts. Like there's a huge Christian population in the U S that is not being really served well digitally. I also have observed that there seems to be somewhat of a aversion to meditation amongst that population where, mm-hmm. you know, people I know have been like, well, I, meditation, like, isn't that some Hindu thing? Like they think of it as in opposition with their religion they identify with. And so they don't do it. And what I've seen in apps like Halo and is that they actually have like, meditations uh, that are ones that very similar style of uh, actual practice, but it's 
positioned to meet that population where they are. Mm. And so it's very interesting. And um, it makes like, to me, like two immediate things come to mind are like, and I know we've talked about this, like, how are the other big religions in the world being served digitally? Is there opportunities to like reposition uh, existing practices that are just beneficial for life to those people in those in, in approachable ways? The other one is it also it points to the verticalization on the med- meditation side of things, which I have a little bit of context for where, you know, today the primary meditation apps are around sleeping and de-stressing. But like my friend, for example, had a meditation for babies, like for pregnant mothers, right? Mm. You could imagine a meditation for athletes to get better at their, their, their sport, whatever they're doing. And so like, I do think like it kind of sheds a light on the fact that there are opportunities for vertical focused solutions. I don't know how big of businesses those are relative to other ones, but, um, you know, it, it, with huge, huge populations, like the Catholics, they're clearly, uh, clearly there's something there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think that my, my last observation with the, why these are such big businesses already is, a lot of like churches are in community and I can imagine there being a big viral component to them, right? Like if I were working on one of these uh, companies, I would probably be asking my, you know, the users to be inviting other people that they know that would benefit from it. And then long-term, there's probably an opportunity to build community digitally first, Right. And moving away from the physical church itself. And who knows, it'd be quite fascinating if um, the next mega church is actually uh, Halo, <laughs> uh, you know, mm, the app. Interesting. We'll see. Uh, let's watch for that. It's like the Tao of religion, <laughs> it, it, you know, digital first and then physical. Um, we'll see. But let's let's move on to um, sound and light. And, um, you know, I'm actually pretty pumped about sound if you're not familiar effectively with sound uh if if we, if you believe we live in a world of vibration a world of energy and we are in fact just composites of energy particles vibrating sound is actually a way to change our state because of the law of resonance law of resonance basically states that when there's two frequencies which is how waves are measured, energy waves, sound waves, the more dominant frequency tends to, the lower frequency tends to resonate or or become very similar to the more dominant frequency. And so um, that fundamental principle can be used with sound where we can become entrained to, you know, change our brainwaves into more meditative states, altered states, um, can also entrain the nervous system. And, uh, this has been, this is not a new phenomenon. Like again, there, there were people hundreds, thousands of years ago, sitting around drum circles, chanting, taking advantage of these rhythmic states to reach altered states of consciousness. Um, and to, I don't know how you feel, Greg, 
to me, it feels like at least with sound and I, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit less in the weeds with light. There hasn't really been a breakout company yet. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that, um, there, there haven't, there hasn't been a breakout company. And I think it's worth noting like what types of companies that we've seen. Right. So with sound, there have been the, the companies to me that are, are most interesting are actually not just sound, but sound plus vibration. It's the combination of the two. And as you mentioned, sound is a vibration, but I mean like physical vibration. So you have companies like Toonbed and Opus that are creating um, furniture, like couches that both are in, uh, designed to vibrate and also you're wearing headphones and you're getting a soundscape in at the same time. And that can be very, as you mentioned, very calming on the nervous system. So that's like one area that I've been thinking a lot about lately because I've experienced things like that. Um, and they generally are actually quite calming. I think that what's interesting is that the companies that I just mentioned, the price points are actually quite expensive. Um, the Opus bed is $2,500. Uh, the Tune bed is almost $10,000. So they're definitely starting at the higher end of the market. But ultimately, to build a big business like a venture scale, like $100 million revenue business, let's say, at those price points, you don't actually need to sell that many uh, that many couches or, or, or whatnot. Obviously, you need to look at the margins also. I don't know what their cost of goods are. But um, I think that they have the ability to scale uh, pretty quickly. Um, I think it's also worth noting that I like the fact that the sort of the, the model of the vibroacoustic furniture doesn't require a huge behavioral change, right? That's People right. own furniture already. So you're kind of able to slot in a new piece of furniture that actually may be good on your parasympathetic nervous system. Like, that's great. I'm, I'm into that. I think generally when I look at hardware devices that actually require behavior change, you have to like put on something that you generally don't wear adherence just drops pretty dramatically. And so I think that they benefit from that. Um, but I think to the first category of companies, which is just the pure sound, you know, there's companies like brain.fm or Endel, which have like really soothing soundscapes and some of them are using binaural beats. And I think those are really like, uh, can be really delightful, but you know, I think the ultimate question is what's the moat? You can find some of these soundscapes on YouTube, um, and I'm sure some of them are accessible on Spotify. So I definitely have some questions around the moat and what, what, you know, why will one company necessarily have like a outsized return relative to the other options available? Yeah, I, I agree. I, um, I've, I actually went deep on, on those companies. At one point I thought I wanted to do something in sound and, you know, I can say what Endel tries to position themselves as, um, incorporating a personalization. And so, you know, what you learn about sound is effectively that there's this idea of everyone has a specific, every person, every nervous system has a resonant frequency. They have a unique harmonic property that puts them into balance. And what Endel tries to do is to personalize that based on a number of factors to, you know, improve the quality of the experience. I can say that I didn't notice a big enough shift to continue using it relative to the free alternatives that you mentioned. I also think, 
you know, one of the things with whether it's sound, breathwork, meditation, another consideration point is, is that that actually makes the furniture kind of interesting is that people only have a certain amount of time in the day. Like you're not going to meditate mm. and do a sound meditation and do a breath work. That's like an hour and a half, two hours of time. Like people just aren't going to do that. And so, you know, I think those technologies, which can be incorporated into your existing experience are compelling or are so transformative that you prioritize them. I think the the Opus sound bed is one where if you don't have a meditation practice, you're not into breath work, but you love the idea of just laying down on something at 3 p.m. in the middle of the day to get a pep up or to feel better, like, and that works for you. I can see that being very compelling. You know, I also can see these type of devices being used in clinical settings, right? Like yeah. Go to the physical therapist place, lay on the sound bed. It's like part of the experience. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm excited about the vibro acoustic sounds combination. I actually bought an opus. I don't know when it's coming, but uh, mm-hmm. I did buy it. And I think um I think the 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 interesting thing about sound for me is and I and I did experience this with this technology called New Calm that I got turned on to in 2018 is that unlike meditation and even unlike breath work, you find something that's really good. It's actually the easiest thing for people to consume. Like anyone can throw Mm. on headphones and just sit there. Like, you know what I mean? Where the biggest gripe I hear with meditation is like, I just can't do it. I don't know if I'm doing it right. Like, all right, well, all you got to do is just lay there and you're doing it right. So I'm excited about sound. I think there's going to be more more going on here. And I know this is kind of Opus's big go-to-market year. And uh, interested to see how it takes, you know, how how, how the market receives it. I mean, on their website, they say that they have 10,000 that have been reserved. So it's not insignificant for initial demand. And let's let's shift gears to the light side of things. Um, and I would say it's light and visual, right? And so the way I see it is you have uh, a type, a couple types of companies. You have some companies that are creating experiences where you close your eyes and there is flashing light basically on your eyelids. So you have companies like Luminate, which is an app that actually uses your iPhone light to do so. Uh, you have companies like Reality Labs, which has a space in Santa Monica. Um, they actually have a light uh, plus sound, and they have a special experience with a vibrating waterbed. So you're seeing this convergence of right. all of these sensory experiences. And then you have the VR type of experiences. So you have companies like Trip um, or Cyreal that are creating experiences such that you are uh, in the VR you know, metaverse, you're in really um, calming or uh, sort of contemplative environments. Uh, Some are actually mimicking nature, interestingly, and they're being used to induce a calming meditative state. Some of them actually pair with breathing, for example. And so we're seeing again, like this convergence of like breathwork plus light and VR. So I think it's worth noting that while we're creating these silos in the context of this conversation, there is a lot of hybrid models that are ultimately potentially available. Um, 
And yeah, so it, it feels like it's very early days in this field as well. I think what gets me excited is I think that there's just a lot we could be doing in VR in particular. Uh, there's just like a there, VR still feels like a, to me in, in some ways, like we're in the Nintendo 64 days. Mm. And I think that the graphics are going to continue to get better. The experiences will be more real. I mean, there are some people who would say that like, we'll ultimately be able to simulate an environment that is as real as our current environment. And then there's some other people who say, well, if that's possible, then are we actually already just in a simulation? That's for another podcast. But, um, you know, I think that when I think about the what, what's possible in creating realities in virtual reality, I think that it's it's still like hard to imagine what is possible. But I think that there will be experiences that can induce really altered states in VR and AR and mixed reality. Yeah. Um, a few, a few points of commentary. Um, I definitely noticed the same thing where it seems like the, many of these experiences are converging just to create enhanced sensory experiences, like immersive experiences. And I believe like at some point in our lifetimes, like I, I just noticed like people drink less, you know, people are like mm. socializing differently. And I would not be shocked if 10 years from now, there's like lounges where you go and you have some cool ass immersive experience. And then you're talking about it and hanging out and that becomes like a new social activity versus just like hitting the bar yeah. where you, you could start to see the integration of light and sound thing. And, and yeah, I mean, look, Apple just came out, their, their big new bet is it's not quite VR, but it's something on your over your eyes that is changing the the world yeah. at which you look out on. And um, I think that's going to be really interesting to watch and probably represent an opportunity to help people with this kind of altered state experience if, if some choose to, to go there. And we'll see. I mean, I got to tell you, like, it's funny as much of this stuff as I'm into, I'm also like, I don't want to buy one of those things. I don't, I don't have a VR headset. Like I want to actually like just go live in the woods <laughs> and be more like attuned to, to nature. But yeah. I also, you know, I can see where these provide a really powerful substance-free peak experience. That could be, that could be pretty cool to dip your toe into every once in a while as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't want to live in a ready player one world, uh, for sure. Um, I think that there's a place for these experiences, but yeah, they can't replace our physical lived experience in the world. 100%. Well, I mean, I think that covers all of the categories that we wrote about. And obviously, there's there's some things that we didn't get to touch on. Like I know we've talked about hypnosis, um, as a state change. And there's lots of things that I would characterize as more personality driven today. So things like Joe Dispenza and Gabor Mate and trauma work where you're usually working with a practitioner or it's related to something in, um, 
just working with the subconscious in general. And so, um, don't really see a lot of startup activity in those places yet, but that could change. Um, and I think as more and more people get onto the consciousness journey, trying to discover the greater depths of themselves and this reality that we find ourselves in, perhaps we will see more startup activity there. The fun part about technology and working in venture is you're constantly surprised about what you get pitched and different ways to solve certain problems. And so what I'm excited about are the non-obvious ways that could exist to achieve uh, or enter alternative states of consciousness. So for me, that's one thing I'm thinking about. Like there's so many non-obvious ways that tinkers and scientists and entrepreneurs are probably working on in labs and in their garages, et cetera. And so really excited about that. I also, one other thing that's on my mind when I think about what's, what's next is the incorporation of the wisdom and the wisdom keepers of many of these traditions. I think it would be a pity if the, the way that these companies ultimately manifested was purely from the capitalist lens, let's say. Uh, I think that there is definitely an opportunity to have more of a stakeholder model involved, and that could mean these elders and wisdom keepers are actually involved in the co-creation of these companies. I think that, to me, would be really nice to see because, you know, otherwise, you just may lose really important elements of these traditions. And I think for those, in some cases, I think that it probably makes sense for there to be, I don't know, reciprocity. That's the word that's used in the psychedelic field, for example. And so um, that's something that I'm definitely thinking about. Yeah, I, I agree with you that, you know, I'm a little weary of techifying lots of consciousness stuff without some of the deeper lessons. And, and, you know, my experience has been, it's the expansion of consciousness with the exception of maybe psychedelics has been a very much a internal unwinding process that has been heeding the advice of wisdom traditions and teachers. Yeah, I hope, I don't know how we integrate that. I think that's an interesting idea. I would love to, that for that to be incorporated as well, because I think if a bunch of people, like what this could turn into is like a, a bunch of people just like going on carnival rides. And I don't think that that is really the goal of consciousness and expanding it. I think the goal is to bring us back to deeper levels of meaning, understanding, connectivity, and uh, hopefully these technologies are gateways to that and not just another form of distraction that prevents us from achieving those things as, as a species. And uh, the wisdom teachings uh, certainly would help with that. Totally. Well, the last thing I'll say is, you know, while I think that there is a lot of sometimes hesitant to use the word truth, but there's a lot of wisdom in the ancient traditions. It is also worth noting that everything's always evolving too, right? And so what's possible is that bits and pieces of certain traditions 
could be remixed uh, with more modern technologies and ways of thinking that are influenced by what we know in society, science, culture, et cetera. So, you know, thing the only thing that's constant is change. And so I think that ancient traditions are no different. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. This has been a ton of fun, man. I'm glad we did this. Um, I hope everybody that's listening enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll come back in a year from now and do part two uh, as some of these different companies and spaces uh, unfold in a bigger way. Yeah, maybe we record live from the Halo megachurch. Oh, perfect. (laughs) All right, we'll see everybody. (laughs) All right, bye now. This is Business Trip, a podcast about the business of psychedelics. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SciMedVentures. And if you're building a company in frontier mental health, hit us up at hi at SciMed.Ventures. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Sarabrinsky. Our producer and editor is Jonathan Davis, with production coordination from Caitlin Nerr. Sound design and engineering came from Nico Ray, Our theme music is by Dorian Love and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time.